Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Alice Neal, along with Randall Griffey. My first guest, Kelly Baum, is the co-curator of the retrospective exhibition Alice Neal, People Come First at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. The exhibition is on view through August 1st. It presents Neal as a radical portraitist whose work most often foregrounded humanism and social justice. The exhibition also includes Neal's still lifes, self-portraits, and all kinds of other wonderful pictures. The exhibition catalog, which is chock full of them, was published by The Met. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for around $50. On the second segment, Soutine de Kooning Conversations in Paint at the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia. If you enjoy the show, please give us a five-star rating and a review wherever you download the program. We'd really appreciate it. Kelly Baum, after the break. Now that the Getty Villa Museum has reopened, get free reservations to explore the villa's blooming gardens, antiquities galleries, and perhaps most exciting of all, the major new exhibition, Mesopotamia Civilization Begins. Featuring work from the Met in New York and the Louvre and Bibliothèque Nationale de France in Paris, Mesopotamia is the most important assemblage of Mesopotamian art ever presented on the West Coast. Visit online or make advance reservations for the villa at getty.edu. Shireen Nishat, I Will Greet the Sun Again, organized by The Broad, Los Angeles, will be on view at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth February 19th through May 16th. The exhibition surveys approximately 30 years of the artist's video works and photography, investigating her passionate engagement with ancient and recent Iranian history, the experience of living in exile, and the human impact of political revolution. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Hockney Van Gogh, The Joy of Nature, showcasing the work of David Hockney and Vincent Van Gogh side-by-side for the first time in an American museum and only in Houston. Discover the expansive landscape paintings and vivid drawings of two renowned artists. For details on virtual lectures, curated shopping, and tickets, go to mfah.org slash Hockney Van Gogh. And we're back. Kelly Baum, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Alice Neal, can we separate her artistic achievements from her politics, or should we even try? I would say no, we should not separate her art from her politics, although we don't want her politics to overwhelm her work. I think it's important to understand her politics and the way they weave themselves through her through her paintings and and drawings, but I also think it's important to appreciate her paintings and drawings as works of art that that function in in some part independently from her commitments. Maybe one way of kind of thinking through that idea with a specific painting is in her 1964 portrait of James Farmer. Who was Farmer and how did he come to be sitting for Neil? Well, James Farmer was one of the co-founders of CORE, Congress of Racial Equality, which he started in Chicago. It relocated offices to New York. Neil, who was a, a great supporter of the civil rights movement, came to know him. I'm not exactly sure how. Through political connections, I'm sure. She painted Farmer as well as his two daughters. She painted Farmer the same year that he was arrested outside of the World's Fair, protesting segregation and and racial violence. Farmer played a really pivotal role in organizing the Freedom Rides in the South, as well as voter registration drives and the March on, on Washington. And your question, though, concerned separating art and politics in a work like her painting of James Farmer. Yeah, I mean, for me, there's it's a painting with unusual gravity, even within her oeuvre. I mean, the chair in which she puts him, or in which he's actually sitting, who knows, right, <laughs> is a swirl of, it's a swirl of, swirl of green, whereas he has tremendous stolidity. Yes. He's like a fist. I think of him as a, as a fist, a, a raised fist that just so happens to be sitting in a chair and that has kind of taken the form of a very powerful, very determined man that she clearly admired very much. 
So, so Neil's sitters, they didn't always come from her immediate environment, but, but for the most part, she painted people who were close at hand. So people who were part of her immediate political, artistic, personal circles. And, and this was, was true of James Farmer. Many of these sitters were politically inclined, like Neil. They shared her political sympathies. It's how she came to know them. But James Farmer, he's in, in the portrait that she painted of him, he's not wearing a pin. He's not carrying a placard. We actually don't see him outside. You know, I suppose she could have painted a picture of him outside of the World's Fair as he's being handcuffed. But instead, she shows him sitting in a chair. And here she uses all the tools at her disposal, paint, color, canvas, composition. She uses the tools of her own trade, art, to convey his political idealism, his his political ambitions. I, I think it's really interesting that he, you know, Farmer was such a large man in in life and reputation, but the painting is is relatively small. He's somewhat squeezed into its four corners, but it's precisely because he's squeezed into a relatively small canvas that he projects as much strength as he does. He seems to be pushing against the edges with his with his arms. It's almost like he's, with a will of his own, expanding the, the outer edges of, uh, of that canvas. And, and she uses paint to such great effect in his face. Neil tended to lavish attention on her sitter's faces and, and, and allowed the composition to become more, more unfinished as it moved out from the head. And that allowed her to uh, enable a kind of connection between her sitters and the viewer. In this case, his brow is very deeply furrowed. His eyes stare out of the canvas directly at, at the audience. And, and that, that face, just the way she's painted the face, does so much work in communicating farmers' political beliefs as well as her own. Across the 19th century and well into the 20th century, artists denied Black men and women the markers of American nationhood, of American republicanism, of the American state. Neil paints Farmer wearing red, white, and blue, which is something, I mean, you just practically never saw in the 19th century and then only only vaguely less regularly as the 20th advanced. Let's turn to the beginning of, of Neil's career and her early earlier life. At the age of about 26, she leaves Philadelphia, where she'd grown up, for Cuba. Why did she go to Cuba? And, you know, I think probably more importantly, what did she get out of it? Well, in 1925, she was a student in Philadelphia at the Philadelphia School of Design for Women. And that summer, she met a young Cuban artist named Carlos Enrique. They married the following year, and Carlos took her to Havana. And they stayed for, for almost a year. Neil's first exhibitions, both solo and group exhibitions, were in Havana, which is very interesting. And I, I think there's a lot more work to do on the on Neil's experiences in, in Cuba. It's a subject that, that Randy and I investigated as much as possible <laughs> during COVID. Neil cut her teeth on a certain kind of empathetic, expressionistic social realism. She, When she was in Havana, she traveled the city with a group of avant-garde artists and, and writers, which included her, her husband. They painted individuals that they encountered on the street, people of color, poor people. And these were, again, very sympathetic, sort of brushy paintings made with an eye towards empathy for those at the margins of society. Now, this group of artists that she met in, in Havana, they were also left-leaning, very progressive, and it's there that she came to cut her teeth on, on a certain kind of, of socialism, and she would bring that back with her to the United States, and it would really come to impact her in the 1930s when she settled in, in Greenwich Village. The first portrait-ish, if you will, in your show is is from that decade, from 1933, and, and it's a it's a portrait of a an individual appearing before a philanthropic foundation in pursuit of aid. The last portrait in your show is from 1984. Even with my slack math, I know that's 51 years, which is a heck of a long time for an artist to remain committed to something at the core of his or her practice. Do you have ideas about what initially 
pointed her toward portraiture? And then, naturally enough, why she chose to stick with it? Well, actually, the earliest picture in the show is from the 1920s, and it's a painting of a young woman. It's called French Girl. She made it while she was in school in in Philadelphia. It's a beautiful young woman. She's sitting against an an indistinct kind of grayish-brown background. She's staring out the side of the canvas. And the next earliest work in the show is of her husband, Carlos Enrique, it's from 1926, likely paint, painted while, while they were in Cuba. I think that, that Neil, she was originally drawn to paint people in part because of the training she received in, in Philadelphia. Robert Henry cast, uh, cast a very long shadow over that school he used to teach there, and portraiture was, was key to his practice. While she was in Cuba, she continued to paint people. Now, it wasn't long after that she began to disassociate her practice with portraiture, with with conventional portraiture. And eventually she came to describe what we call portraits as pictures of people. She thought portraiture was a hopelessly moribund conventional genre that she wanted to have nothing to do with. Her pictures of people were, for her, history paintings. She was painting the history of the 20th century through the people that survived it. Do we have an understanding of how she came to think of portraiture as history painting? Because I think there are a lot of moments in the show where the non-portraiture pictures, if you will, you know, feel very time and place, you know, like her, 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 her pictures of elevated subways in the mid-1930s. So how did she come to think of, of these various modes, particularly portraiture as history painting? I can't pinpoint the exact moment when she began to, and and I'd, I'd have to go to the catalog to find the date of the quote in which she, and this is something she said frequently, in which she identified her portraits as pictures of people, or or the the, the moment in which she described her paintings as as history paintings. You know, it might very well have had a lot to do with her experience during the Great Depression. She was one of the first artists to join the WPA and its its predecessor, another uh, another federal arts project. And in that case, she was like all other artists, she was commissioned to capture the nation, its people and places at a very specific moment in time. And, you know, this is a question that I would pose to Randy, that Randy is probably better able to answer than, than I am. But but I think, you know, the, the WPA was commissioning history paintings, essentially contemporary history paintings from artists and photographers all over the country. They were being asked to document document the nation through its people and its streets and its farms during during these years dur- during the 1930s. And so I you know I wouldn't be surprised if her experience on the WPA prompted her to rethink the meaning and purpose of of portraiture and to con- consider it a form of history painting. You know, now that you put it that way, her it's not in the show, but but her 1936 Unita, U-N-E-E-D-A, ha-ha, Unita Biscuit Strike, has that kind of history painting feel and, 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 and certainly an ideological construction. The people in the foreground, the violence in the middle, and the law in, in the top third, third of the picture. One of the pictures that might be a real pivot between, I don't know, a number of different modes of working is her 1935 portrait of Kenneth Fearing. Fearing was a poet, maybe the most prominent American poet of the Depression era. And her picture features him, certainly, but there's a whole lot of other stuff going on that that we don't think of as being part of portrait painting, such as the tiny baby um, about the size of his wrist next to his arm. Is that a transitional picture or or not? It's a composite picture for sure. It's a, it's a portrait that's also a street scene that's also a history painting. And, and Fearing always thought of himself as the people's poet, a poet for the people of the people. 
And Neil embeds him in his subject matter, and which is the city and, and the people who live in the city, lower working class, ordinary folks who labor and get their hands dirty. The baby is apparently a reference to the birth of Fearing's own child, which happened around the time the painting was made. You see his, his shirt has been torn asunder. He's bleeding for the people. It's a, it's a sign of his commitment to to the the proletariat class and and you know this it, it's great that you pointed this picture out because it's a very clear instance of her pictures of individuals serving simultaneously as pictures of the moment in which they lived and worked and and pictures of the the metropolis that from which they derived all of their their energy and and towards which all their passion was directed a lot of portrait painters smooth or idealize their sitters. Neil, almost from the start, rejected that. You know, in, in, in terms of the 19th century, we might say that she prioritized truth over idealization. You know, in the 19th century, that was a very American idea. In the European construct, idealization was, was preferred, you know, descending from the Renaissance and all. What do we know about how she came to to prioritize truth and reject smoothing and perfecting her subjects? You know, Neil, with the exception maybe of some very, very early work from the 1920s, Neil was, as you said, never inclined to idealize or romanticize. And, and some of that spirit she probably inherited from Robert Henry and an earlier American artist who were interested in, in capturing capturing American society in at least some of its imperfection. But I think that, you know, in at her heart, Neil was a, she wasn't a realist painter, but she was a pragmatist at heart. And, and by pragmatist, I mean that she didn't see the world through rose-colored glasses. She was very honest and candid about the trials and tribulations that people faced in, in the 20th century. And she thought it was her duty to capture them, to bear witness to suffering and injustice. And I think that her commitment to bearing witness to suffering and injustice, it, that's part of what led her away from, from romance and, and idealism. You can't, you can't bear witness and, and also idealize your, your subjects. The two positions aren't really compatible. There are a few pictures in this exhibition that do have a very romantic kind of cast to them, but they're exclusively of one of her partners, Jose Santiago Negron. And there's a there's a picture from 1936 painting called Jose, and it's it's absolutely dreamy. And and Neil's love and and adoration for Jose come through absolutely in this extremely beautiful, very intimate picture. But for the most part, you won't find a trace of idealism or, or romance in, in Neil's pictures. She was too committed to revealing gritty, difficult truths about the world. She painted him quite a number of times, often with her or, or in bed, which I think it's your essay in the catalog that points out how, how extreme a break from art history it was that she painted the two of them in bed or him in bed from her, her point of view. The 1936 picture of him, you know, it, we'll have an image of it on, on manpodcast.com. Is there an art historical lineage or pictorial precedent that comes to mind for that picture? You know, there might be, I mean, I think there is a, an art, art historical precedent for romantic images of one's lovers or paramours, few of them painted from the point of view of a woman. I think, you know, even more daring are images that Neil painted or drew of other pictures of her and Jose asleep in bed, sometimes nude, more irreverent ones of Neil with another lover named John, John Rothschild, two of which are in this exhibition. And then another quite blasphemous drawing of her partner, Kenneth Doolittle from, from 1932. And, you know, feminist Critics and art historians in the 1970s, like Cindy Nemser and Linda Nochlin, they celebrated Neil's work precisely because it gave voice to female desire, because Neil produced images, eroticized images of men. 
men she loved, and she produced them from her own point of view. And she she paraded her her sexual agency in these pictures. And instead of the the subject of you know desiring male gaze, she depicted men from the point of view of a desiring female gaze. And this really turned the tables on the genre of of erotic art. And there are very few precedents in in the history of art for these kind of images. And these are from the 30s. They're they're really early, these these intimate and and erotic watercolors and and drawings. There is an art historical parallel for the 1936 Jose picture that jumped out at me, and that's Picasso's 1903 La Vie, which is the male figure in that picture is Picasso's dear friend, Carlos Casagemas. And they look more than a little bit alike. It must be said, or at least that's how, how Neil, Neil paints him, right down actually to the blue tones. It's a blue period Picasso, of course. You know, in terms of Neil's including the erotic within her practice, there is an extraordinary 1935 work that's not in the show. It's called Joie de Vivre. It's from Yale. It's recently been on view, and as it's on paper, you know, there are limits to these things. But <laughs> at the risk of making the question a joke. In what context did Neil paint a pig as an avatar for herself and why? <laughs> yes. Well, this work by by Alice Neil, it's one that I, I wanted very much, that Randy and I wanted very much to include in the show and weren't able to. I think it's Neil's most radical work. I mean, I, I think it's absolutely key to understanding everything about Neil as an artist, as a political creature, as a as a person. And and the drawing, which includes some color in, in crayon, depicts her her lover John Rothschild. He's naked in the center of the the paper. And he's holding hands with with two anthropomorphized female pigs, one of whom is holding on to a, a smaller pig. And they're prancing and dancing on, on the sheet of paper and, and cups, wine glasses, wine bottles, flowers are floating around them in, in space. And one of jo John is naked except for socks and shoes. And, and one of his shoes detaches itself from his foot and and floats over to the pig on his left and begins to tickle her clitoris. <laughs> It's, a, it's part Disney postcard. Neil probably knew of silly, the, the, the silly symphonies that were coming out around the same time, including the three pigs. So it's part silly symphony, part pornographic postcard. The pig is most certainly Neil herself. She and John were in a longstanding sexual relationship. And there's something so delightful and uncensored about this particular picture, which essentially shows an, an avatar for the artist receiving sexual pleasure. And it's, you know, I'm giggling, but it, it makes you giggle. It, it makes you uncomfortable. It's, it's delightful at the same time that it's very intimate and, and uncensored. I, I think it's fabulous. And I think that it's important to understand these erotic drawings and watercolors by Neil as political statements. Uh, they represent the artist making a not just a sexual claim, but but a political claim. I deserve to have desire. I, I deserve to be a, a sexual agent like a man. Neil liked to say that she was a feminist before there was feminism. And it's certainly true of a, of a drawing like, like this one. You know, I, I think there's probably one more thing there too, right? And that is that, that women can make funny paintings and funny jokey paintings too. You know, an arts history in 1935 was not rich with such. Yeah, I and I think I think your point is a very important one that Neil is and this is why I think these drawings are so effective and and effective is that she you know, she she doesn't she doesn't romanticize sex sex and sexuality either. You know, her images are very often cut with humor and and irreverence and and playfulness. And so, you know, Neil is is somebody who is very serious about art, but didn't take herself so seriously. And I think that's one reason why it's so enjoyable to to look at Alice Neil's work. Neil made a special project, if you will, of painting pregnant nudes. Why? Well, Neil said later in life when she was asked this very question, she said it was because pregnancy was a fact of life, but had never received its due. It had never been 
recognized. Its centrality to not just women's lives, but society in general, had never been recognized as such. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But what she did say is that pregnancy is simply a fact of life. And you don't see it enough. You don't hear it enough. She made her first pregnant nude in 1964, her last in 1978. But those were not her first pictures of of mothers. In 1936, she made a painting of a woman giving childbirth, a friend that she met in the maternity ward. And throughout her career, she made pictures of women holding children, caring for children, nursing children. And so the pregnant nudes are are a, a continuation of a larger body of work on and about motherhood. I think that she was also drawn to the pregnant body because it was a formal challenge. She she said that she found pregnant women's bodies interesting plastically, which meant that that she found them interesting formally. And so, you know, Neil Neil was was drawn to nudity in in general. She painted many nudes, and the nude body was a source of humor for her. I'm sure she thought nude bodies and all of their glorious imperfections were hilarious. I think that she she enjoyed seeing the body stripped bare of pretense and, and affect. For her, sometimes nudity was a symbol of precarity and vulnerability. But I think she just loved painting nude bodies, sagging, wrinkled, pregnant, swollen. They were a, a formal challenge to her and one that she embraced. In 1973, she made an ink drawing of Adrienne Rich. How might that drawing be related to Neil's interest in pregnant nudes? You know, Adrian Rich published a very important book on motherhood around the time that Neil made this drawing, which was for a journal on on, on poetry. And Rich was a very important feminist, and um, she was one of the few feminists to address motherhood in in any depth or or substance. And Personally, I was very interested in the relationship of Neil's images of mothers to the feminist movement, to the feminist art movement. And I wanted to find sources for these images in the feminist art movement. And I couldn't because feminists, more or less, at the time, second generation feminists, 1970s, tended to think of pregnancy and motherhood as problems to solve through contraception or or abortion and maybe childcare. But the physical, emotional, psychological experience of motherhood, motherhood as an embodied fact of life, didn't really interest artists so much. And when feminist artists represented mothers, especially pregnant mothers, they tended to overtly politicize them. And and usually, you know, for the most part, pregnancy and motherhood were seen as burdens, as a form of prison. And neither Adrian Rich nor Neil seemed to believe that. Now, they were realistic about motherhood, Neil herself spoke about the awful dichotomy, the struggle of trying to have a career as a woman and raise children. That struggle was familiar to Rich. And yet I think both Rich and Neil recognized a specifically female power in in pregnancy, a kind of transformative metamorphic power that is embodied very much in the pregnant female body. There's an early work from 1930 when Neil was 30, or 29, I guess, possibly, titled Futility of Effort. It is among the more, heck, it probably is the most abstract work in the show. And it seems to have different ideas about parenting and child having than she would have later on. In some ways, it's, some ways, I guess it's the darkest picture in the show. What does it show and how do you read it? Well, Futility of Effort, I think, is a, will, will be a a real surprise for people who think they know Neil. It's in a section of the exhibition called The Human Comedy, a phrase that we borrowed from Neil herself. It's tucked away in a corner and it's alone by itself on the wall. It's a very small, very intimate picture from 1930, almost completely monochromatic, gray background with the, the, the subject rendered with very few lines, it's very diagrammatic. What you see in the picture is a schematic window on the left. In the middle, a baby's body, which is kind of displaced left to right, and arcing over it are the bars of a crib. The child is divided from what appears on the right side of the canvas by a, a broken black line, which signals 
the transition from from one one room to another and the child's parent its mother you see rendered in profile in that in that last section of the painting neil described it as an homage to as a as a memorial actually to the death of her first child santiana from diphtheria a few years earlier, as well as the death of a child that she read about in the paper, a baby that choked on the bars of its crib. And she she was determined to distill this experience of grief and, and mourning, which was her own experience, as well as the experience of this other mother, to distill those those experiences into an extremely abstract, you know, very eloquent painting. She thought of it as her most revolutionary painting. That's what she called it. This is my most revolutionary painting. Not because as abstract as it is, but because it gave voice to something felt and experienced. And Neil seemed to think that, I think what she's saying in that quote is that Painting a feeling, painting an, an, an experience, especially a feeling and an experience that belongs specifically to a mother, to mothers in general, is what makes this truly radical in the history of art. She chose to reproduce it in a left-wing peri- periodical in 1936 called Artfront, and she it was it appeared under a different title, Poverty. But we, uh, Randy and I think that that's very significant because it points to the fact that Neil considered this a political painting. So yes, it has, it's autobiographical. Yes, it's personal. Yes, it's about the death of a child. But it's also, for those very reasons, deeply politicized. And the fact that she reproduced it in a political periodical confirms that for us. As Neil's career went on, you see her her hand become freer. She paints more and more loosely, more and more, I don't know, it's always tempting, I guess, when you're looking at a painting to read loose as joyful, but it sure feels like there's a lot of pleasure in what she's doing. And late in her career, she embraced what you and Randy Griffey, your co-curator, call, quote, the full potential of an unfinished aesthetic, which is a great phrase. (laughs) You, You all should be proud of that one. What was that potential? What did what did painting that way allow her to do? Well, you begin to see it in works from the 1960s. And in this respect, one of the most important is the 1965 picture of James Hunter. Its, its full title is Black Drafty James Hunter. Now, this is a painting that Neil was literally unable to finish. James Hunter, she, she met James Hunter we believe on the street, some of the people she painted were strangers. She invited him to her studio. He sat once or twice. She sketched in his body. She painted completely and fully his face, neck, and, and one of his hands. James Hunter was called away to war, to the Vietnam War. Neil was never able to finish the painting. And yet she considered it complete. She signed it, she dated it, and she included this, this work in her 1974 survey at the Whitney and so I, I wonder if this forced, you know, experiment in unfinishedness gave her permission to experiment more deliberately with the style. Although, in, in point of fact, it was always there. But, you know, Black Drafty is one of the earliest of her unfinished paintings. And you see shortly thereafter, she, you know, works on a on a piece like Hartley, this image of her son from 66, Jenny in a striped shirt from 1969. She's becoming bolder. She's taking greater risks in her use of the unfinished style in which she leaves not just the background unpainted, but sometimes portions of the sitter's own body. And then in 1970, she finally convinces Andy Warhol to travel uptown to the Upper West Side and and sit with her. And her her 1970 portrait of Warhol is an an absolutely, you know, tremendous, super powerful example of Neil mining unfinishedness for both its formal impact and its symbolic impact. This painting of Warhol was made shortly after he was shot by Valerie Solanas. Neil convinced him to pose with a shirt. His scars are visible to the viewer. His corset, which 
supported his abdomen are also visible to the viewer. The sofa on which he sits has only been outlined, not painted in. The background is almost completely empty. There is a blue halo around Warhol's shoulder. You know, oddly, one of his hands and knees are only sketched in, not not painted. And I think here, Neil realized that unfinishedness could tell a story about vulnerability, about precarity, about lives undone through violence and, and trauma. So it's a really striking picture. So this is an observation, not a criticism. A lot of the catalog is rooted in Neil's biography, probably more so than I can recall from a Met catalog. So much so that Marsden Hartley, who I imagine surely must be the source of the name of one of Neil's children, is never even mentioned. And I I imagine that was a pretty conscious decision that 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 you and Randy Griffey would would foreground her biography and her interactions with relationships with her subjects. And so I wondered why. Well, and first I would say that actually Hartley Neal was not named after Marsden Hartley. <laughs> yes, I know. I, Randy was hoping, of course, that I that was see, true. That's but... <laughs> Randy, I, I should <laughs> no. fill in for listeners. Hartley in Maine was co-curated by my guest's co-curator on this Alice Neal show. <laughs> Yes, I know. So <laughs> it's it's it it should be true, but but it's not. So so Neil's biography, I know it was Randy and I were very strategic in when and how and where we allowed the biography to inflect our reading. There's an excellent biography of Neil out there by Phoebe Hoban, and we relied on that book quite a bit. At the same time, we didn't. So Neil's life story is important in part because it registers so immediately in her pictures. She paints people she knows. She paints people she took classes with at the Jefferson School of Social Science. She paints her lovers, her kids, her friends. She paints the city in which she lives. She paints her political comrades. And so it's difficult to extricate Neil's life from her art. At the same time, we didn't want her life to overshadow her art, just as we didn't want the biographies of her sitters to overshadow her paintings of them. We try very much to strike a, strike a balance. In this case, because Neil so often painted from her life experience, biography was inevitable. It's, you know, it's impossible to consider a work like uh, Suicide Ward unless you talk about Neil's year in the suicide ward outside of Philadelphia. It's impossible to talk about futility of effort without understanding that that painting was inspired by the death of her first daughter. At the same time, the paintings are more than the artist's biography. And so we keep bringing attention back again and again in our catalog essays and in our labels to the objects themselves, to how they were made, what they're made of, and how they they function formally and, and technically. We've been talking about the portraits a lot, but Neil does paint other things. She paints the city. She paints, there's a marvelous, marvelous 1959 Central Park scene. And it strikes me that in, in the portraits, Neil is always there with the sitter. She's, she's with the person. You, as you look at the portraits, you, you are thoroughly aware that the person painting the portrait is where you're standing. It strikes me that in the non-portraits, She's always positioning herself as an outsider looking in from beyond. Do you have a sense of whether she thought of non-portrait subjects differently than she thought of working in at, at home or in her home studio? You know, she doesn't write as much about these works or didn't write as much about these works as she did her pictures of people. And in the 60s and 70s, when most of the interviews were taken, you know, her her interlocutors are, are thinking about her pictures of people. That's what was, you know, traveling and, and showing. And and so so we don't have a historical record and an archival record on which to draw as much as we do with the portraits. I'm I'm thinking about a few that are in the show, though. And, you know, it's interesting is that you know, many of them are painted from her apartment window. And so she, just as the portraits are painted from inside of her home, which was always her studio, 
so too are many of these city scenes are painted from inside of her home, which was also her studio, this time looking out a window. That's true of Cityscape from, from 1968, that very early painting of Spanish Harlem from 1938. She's also looking through the window of her apartment out to the steps of her brownstone and, and the street. And then some of these, the protest pictures to Nazis murdered Jews from 36 and say Willie McGee from 1950, she's positioned from deep inside a mass of protesting human beings. So she really puts herself in in the crowd, so so to speak. But, you know, there are pictures where she seems to be apart. I think that's maybe true of a fish market from, from 1947, where she appears to be hovering. You know, she's not positioned herself as a viewing subject down on the ground, you know, at the, the, the counter. She seems to be perched, you know, maybe from the top of, of the stairs. And so I think that it really depends on, on the picture, the, the, the specific picture in question. There are two in particular that strike me as super Edward Hopper looking. One is 1978's View from the Artist's Window, which is also a glorious, rhythmic, wonderful exercise in color. And 107th and Broadway from a couple of years earlier, from 76. Maybe because I'm an Americanist, I see 1976 and a painting of New York City painted red, white, and blue. I think I know what she's getting at. But but those two pictures are interesting to think about in terms of her looking outside just as she would look inside, you know, from the same chair, mm-hmm. if you will. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. She and she painted this this facade. It's the same facade seen from two slightly different points of view. And one of them lives in the section of the show on New York City, and the other lives in the section of the show called Good Abstract Qualities. It's view from the artist's window and This to us was an excellent example of her attention to good abstract qualities, which she thought were part of any decent, decent painting. And, you know, here the facade of that building coincides with the flat surface of the canvas and the light that she manages to capture, you know, reflecting off of that, that, that painted facade is so, so immediate. I I should point out in those two paintings, she's painting the same building. She's just painting them completely differently. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. I don't know if I said that or not, but I meant to. (laughs) I want to close by pointing at some of the ways in which Neil made paintings that really, I think, specifically intensely engaged art, art history. You know, there's still life with fruit from 1940, which is kind of her making a Matisse. There's black bottles from 1977, which could be considered a wink at Mirandi. There's still life Rose of Sharon, from 1973, which looks at a range of the French floral still life tradition. And my favorite of this group of pictures, which you've published together in the catalog, I should note, is a painting called Cut Glass with Fruit from 1952. And it is a marvelous example of her, of her, of her sense of humor. We were talking about her, her, you know, she can make jokes without pigs too, right? It's a joke about cubism, and it's a joke about, as much as it's a joke about cubism, it's a joke about kind of kitschy post-war American industrial production. I can see lots of curators choosing to leave it out of an Alice Neal retrospective. It's not kind of what we expect from Neal. So what about it did you love, and why did you decide it had to be here? <laughs> yes, well, that th- I'm so glad you called this work out. So Randy and I spent a lot of time with the with the Alice Neal estate, especially with Jenny and, and Hartley Neal. And they pulled dozens and dozens of works for us from out of storage, at, both at their home and here in New York. And because we wanted to see everything, we didn't want to curate the same Alice Neal retrospective. And so that meant kind of going, you know, to the fifth or sixth screen and digging deep. This is one that came out of the vaults and we were absolutely astounded and we couldn't believe <laughs> that it hadn't it hadn't seen the the light of day for well a long time if if ever. 
So we were, its color is tremendous, those greens and blues, the yellows and, and oranges, but it was really the, the, the cut glass itself. And so her her rendering of those faceted planes of glass are so meticulous, so fine, but also really fabulous abstraction and cubist perhaps, but, but definitely abstract. And so we included it because it's a terrific painting, but also because it's it's one that, it's a kind of work for which she's not as well known. You see her in these still lives, as with some of the pregnant nudes, having a lot of fun with the challenges that her subject matter throws throws at her. Yeah, I think that's, I think, I think across this painting, she's having fun. As you look at the cut glass of the, I don't know, it's not a bowl, it's not a cup, it's not a goblet. I don't know what you call that thing. But where, you know, the thing you put some kind of a yeah, fruit, kind of a, an elevated fruit bowl. She's having fun doing things that it's not as evident she does with paint in other places. She's smudging. She's making fun of the idea of structure in a painting. She's you could even say she's laughing at, at opacity and the idea that we can really see what we see. And and the catalog has been open to that page in my coffee table for about two weeks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I and I, I think that this particular still life appears in a section of the exhibition called and we, we wanted to draw attention to the ways that Neil's home, which was her studio, she had three different homes in New York City, all of which were the place served as her studios, we wanted to point out the ways in which her home was not just the place where her art was made, but became a subject in her art. And so she very often paints the activities that occur in the home, like lovemaking and and child rearing and and painting. But she also paints, paints the things that she had at hand, you know, a rocking horse that she found on the curb and repainted for her son, you know, a bowl of fruit that she happened to have on the table when guests popped by. This particular chair and table reappear in a beautiful portrait of uh, Georgie Arce. And so she painted what was at hand, what was part of her domestic environment, including these two pieces of, of cut glass and the, and the fruit that they contain. Awesome. Kelly Baum, thank you. Thank you so much, Tyler. At long last, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2020, a version in partnership with the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. Open April 17th through August 1st, 2021. The fifth edition of the Hammers Biennial, which highlights artists working throughout greater Los Angeles, features new installations, videos, films, sculptures, performances, and paintings, many commissioned specifically for Made in LA. The exhibition will show the 30 artists at both institutions, two versions that make up the whole. Made in LA 2020, a version, on view April 17th through August 1st, 2021, at the Hammer and the Huntington. Find details and make reservations at hammer.ucla.edu and huntington.org. In the book Evicted, Matthew Desmond argues that eviction and homelessness are not only results of poverty, but may also cause it. To contribute to better understanding the close relationship between residential instability and poverty, the exhibition Barriers and Disparities, Housing in America, at Sheldon Museum of Art, explores selected moments in the history of inequitable access to housing in the United States. Works by Ansel Adams, John Biggers, Gertrude Casabir, Gordon Parks, Louis B. Sloan, and Paul Strand are featured for their potency in helping us to consider how housing can pose larger questions about systemic injustices in our society. For virtual galleries, learning guides, and information about online events, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. Welcome back. Next up, Willem de Kooning expert Judith Zilkser joins me to discuss de Kooning's engagement with Heim Soutine's work on the occasion of Soutine de Kooning, Conversations in Paint at the Barnes Foundation. Zilkser contributed an essay to the catalog, which was published by the Barnes in association with two Paris museums, the Musée d'Orsay and the Musée de Lingerie, and Paul Holberton Publishing. The exhibition was curated by Simonetta Frequelli and Claire Bernardi. It's on view in Philadelphia through August 8th. Judith Zilkser, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. My pleasure to be back. 
Are there biographical reasons why Willem de Kooning might have felt a certain simpatico with Haim Soutine? Both artists were immigrants, so one could speculate that de Kooning recognized that uh, Soutine was something of a loner within his circle of modern art painters in Paris a generation earlier than, than de Kooning. And de Kooning was, of course, an illegal immigrant from the Netherlands to the United States. He came in 1926 and was a little bit self-conscious about his immigration status for some number of years, even until he, he sort of made a name for himself in the mid to late 50s in New York. So I think that outsider status was something that de Kooning recognized in Soutine. There is a familiar narrative within art history that de Kooning sees Soutine's work starting in, you know, 4950 and really dives in then. But the first de Kooning in this exhibition at the Barnes dates to 1941. And the first pairing of paintings in in the catalog and in the show argues for earlier discovery. When do you think de Kooning first begins to discover and meditate on Soutine's work? Much, much earlier than previously supposed. The story of de Kooning's awareness of Soutine has been glossed over to some degree by de Kooning scholars, I'm sorry to say. Soutine became quite well-known within modern art enthusiasts in the United States following the 1922 acquisition of a sizable collection of Soutine paintings by Albert Barnes. And from the mid-20s, I believe, through the 1930s, Soutine was occasionally featured in exhibitions in New York. And we know from de Kooning's own testimony that he was following developments in modern art by going to commercial galleries even before the opening of the Museum of Modern Art in 1929. And so it is entirely possible that he was aware of Soutine as early as the late 1920s. He mentions in an interview with Harold Rosenberg that he visited the Reinhardt Galleries, and the Reinhardt Galleries in New York carried uh, works by old masters and School of Paris painters, and Soutine was one of the artists that was shown at the Reinhardt Galleries in 1927 and 1928. So within a year or two of his arrival in New York, conceivably de Kooning could have seen Soutine. And in another interview, Harold Rosenberg related how de Kooning told him that when he discovered Soutine, he quickly ran to share his discovery with Stuart Davis and Arshil Gorky, who were his buddies at the time, and they kind of laughed at him and said, we already know about Soutine. And Kooning was kind of chagrined. That encounter must have dated to the early 1930s because that's when de Kooning was very close with those artists. So I'm guessing his discovery of Soutine likely took place in the early 1930s. But just because de Kooning was aware of Soutine and may have admired him does not mean that at that point in his career, de Kooning, or in his painting, because it might be a little pretentious to call it a career for de Kooning in the early 1930s when he was working odd jobs, that it's entirely, it's entirely possible that he was just soaking it all in, but he wasn't trying to directly incorporate Soutine's uh, expressionist style into his own work until much later. That certainly begins to happen around 1950. 
there appears to be a terrific medium-sized abstraction from 1950 in the show. I've seen it in the catalog. We are taping this not long after the show opened, but I haven't had a chance to see it yet. Yeah, there's a, there's, there's a terrific 1950 abstraction, and then de Kooning begins the women's series, of which iterations are at the Nelson Atkins and the Carnegie and MoMA and the Whitney and the Weatherspoon at Greensboro and probably... Uh, oh, the Anderson Collection at Stanford and a private collection and probably a few others I'm forgetting. I guess the standard art historical view is that this is the moment at which there is a full flowering, a full intensity of de Kooning's attention to Soutine. I would argue that, yes, that, that that is true to some degree, but I would argue that the full flowering of de Kooning's Soutine-esque painterliness appears actually much later in the 1960s and 70s. And I make that argument in the catalog because de Kooning talks most about Soutine in interviews in the 1970s. And it is in 1977, in an interview for Quest, that de Kooning has his most extensive meditation on Soutine and specifically references having visited the Barnes Foundation and being blown away by the Soutines there. And this interview was very well known to de Kooning scholars and scholars of abstract expressionism, but no one had bothered to investigate when de Kooning possibly could have visited the Barnes Foundation. It wasn't exactly open to the public, even in the late 1970s when this interview took place. And when I was working on my monograph on de Kooning, I contacted the Barnes and I asked them, do they have a guest book or a register of visitors? And lo and behold, uh, there are wonderful archivists found a letter from Elaine de Kooning from June 1952 thanking Laura Barnes, a recently widowed wife of uh, Albert Barnes, the founder. Elaine de Kooning was thanking her for the visit. So I was able to date the visit to 1952, which was right in the middle of de Kooning's campaign working on the third group of women paintings. And so one could speculate that the visit was um, in some senses catalytic to de Kooning's resolution of the problems of figure painting in the third series of women paintings. But at the same time, the fact that de Kooning would several decades later remember that visit and be uh, meditating on it and on de Kooning, uh, and on Soutine's paintings indicates to me that he found something more in Soutine later in life that sustained him and allowed him to paint in an even freer and more luscious way of handling his his materials thanks to the example of Soutine. Yeah, that that was one of the interesting things about your your essay for me is that you kind of spotlighted de Kooning's absorption of Soutine as de Kooning moved east on Long Island. <laughs> as, as he moved further from having seen them. <laughs> yes, but he had a, an incredible visual memory and he was looking for something specific because he was so wrapped up in the in the medium and the tactility of painting. And Soutine, likewise, had that painterly plasticity to his, his work that de Kooning admired and uh, tried to, to match in some sense, or not really match, but he found that quality validated his own impulse to paint in that way, I think it would be a better way of putting it. Do you think there were any one or two or three or four Soutines that were particularly important to de Kooning, or was it more a synthesis of many paintings that informed him? I think 
it was a little of both. I think the Serre landscapes resonated with him. And I think he also speaks about uh, Soutine painting, uh, you know, sides of beef and, you know, the uh, dead fowl and that sort of thing. So the the carnal aspect of Soutine's uh, probably resonated with him also. One of the things that interests me, and I guess, you know, practically everyone else, about de Kooning's paintings is it feels like he's painting right up against the picture plane almost always, but often, and really for, you know, maybe the first two-thirds of his career, he's including enough references to perspectival space and depth that there's this real tension between the painterliness up against the picture plane, but the content of the picture receding into the picture. And there's a teeny bit of that in Soutine. Well, maybe more than a teeny bit. There's some of that in Soutine too. I mean, especially when he's painting a slouching figure, that slouch reminds you that you're, you know, that the person is slouching away from, from the picture plane. Is there a lesson that you think de Kooning may have learned from Soutine about how to treat paint and painting different from, differently from subject and representation of subject? That's a very interesting formal point. And I think that de Kooning was struggling in some sense between the demands of the picture plane and space and spatial representation and the sheer joy of marking with paint on canvas, which in some senses is antithetical to the implicit representation implied by a picture plane and spatial recession. So certainly Soutine's freedom of marking, if you will, would have given de Kooning, shall we say, permission to go even further in that direction. One of the things that most jumped out of the catalog to me in a way I haven't, you know, that I'm interested in but haven't solved is, you know, they're painting in some of the same ways, you know, gestural, the brush is present and seemingly visible, but goodness, do they have different palettes? (laughs) I mean, they, they could not have more different palettes. And I wonder if you have ideas about how de Kooning made that same brushiness and gesturiness work with his palette, even as his example was from a very different palette. Well, I think, although it's not fashionable, shall we say, to talk about subject matter, I think the subject matter for both artists in some senses dictated the palette. And in de Kooning's case, He famously said flesh was the reason oil painting was invented, and he was painting, certainly with the women, flesh, even more so in the the women, the door paintings of the early 1960s after he moved to East Hampton. And Soutine was painting more landscapes and still lives, so he had a more earth-toned palette, if you will. De Kooning also admired a quality in Soutine that even with, a, shall we say, a darker or a more somber palette, there was a certain inner glow or radiance to the paint that de Kooning admired and wanted to achieve in his own uh, paintings and certainly the luminosity of the abstract seascapes from the mid to late 70s have that quality. But the palette is totally different because de Kooning was in East Hampton and he was inspired by the geography of his locale, which was, you know, flat air, sky, sand, sea, and and that set color keys for his paintings. At the end of your essay, you note that Soutine held the dominant art world's interests at bay. And during his life, especially in the last, say, 15 or 20 years, boy, de Kooning sure did too. Do you think, or are you suggesting there, that 
the way Soutine lived his career was also important to de Kooning? In the sense that de Kooning, in interviews, expressed admiration and respect for Soutine's single-minded devotion to painting. I think the way Soutine lived his life, to some degree, was circumscribed by historical events because, of course, he had a rather tragic end in in the middle of the war as a, a Jewish emigre artist. He was in danger, and he was ill, and he, he died during the war when um, he had to have an ulcer operation, and he he didn't survive the op- operation. And it was a very risky thing for him to seek medical treatment because of his status in uh, Nazi-occupied France. De Kooning's situation was entirely different if we're speaking about biography. But in terms of attitude toward vocation, I think the two artists had similarly romantic devotion to the artistic way of life, or as de Kooning put it, painting is a way of living. And he saw that attitude toward art in, or he projected that attitude in art. And in addition, he admired Soutine for being a singular figure, not an exemplar of some movement. And de Kooning himself Although, of course, we identify him as a prime mover in the abstract expressionist movement or the New York School, he considered himself an individual. And certainly from the time of his removal from Manhattan to East Hampton, he lived apart from the mo- and, and practiced his art apart from the dominant movements of the 60s and 70s and 80s. Yes, I'm always entertained by how often New York City claims artists and works that were made elsewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Judith Zilkser, thanks very much. (laughs) You're very, very welcome. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.